So Monday past of this week was the 31st of October, which means it was Halloween, which also means it was my seventh year anniversary as a minister of the gospel. I was ordained on the 31st of October 2015. And it also means it was Reformation Day, the day when Reformed and Protestant Christians remember the actions of the young German monk Martin Luther. On the 31st of October 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and this sparked what was perhaps the greatest move of God's spirit since the days of the apostles. Few would have ever expected that the sound of a hammer striking the 95 thesis into the church door would be heard around the world, but they were, and it actually brought about the greatest transformation of Western society. Now what lay at the heart of the Protestant Reformation was Luther's rediscovery of the gospel. We we must not say his discovery of the gospel because the gospel had been been being proclaimed for uh, all through the period following the days of the apostles. But for sure in the Roman Catholic Church there was great darkness, spiritual blindness. There were many who had twisted the gospel, did not understand the gospel. Indeed, that was Martin Luther's problem. He read Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and as a result, he hated the Apostle Paul. He hated what he read. A righteousness from God is revealed. He longed to live a righteous life. He did penance. He disciplined himself. He beat himself. He tried to do everything to be righteous, but he just never felt righteous before God. The opposite, guilty, sinful. And then God opened his eyes to see that the meaning of this verse. And as a result, this, these two verses have become known as the text of the Reformation. They're the verses that are known as the text that changed the world. Now, Apart, wholly apart from Martin Luther, these words demand our attention. Because these are actually the key verses, if I can put it like that, to the book of Romans. This is Paul's thesis statement. These two verses encapsulate all that he is going to say in this letter. In the 15 and a half chapters that follow, Paul is really unpacking what he says in these two verses. And so as we study them tonight, we are going to, in many ways, set out on our great uh, journey into the gospel that Paul presents in Romans. Now, let me just recap where we've been. We've been working through the opening uh, 15 verses. Paul has introduced himself. He's introduced a little bit of the message. He's greeted the Roman Christians. He's given thanks for them. He's said to them his desire is to come and see them. He wants to be mutually encouraged by their faith and his faith. The last thing he said in verse 15 was, so I am eager to preach the gospel also to you in Rome. We're going to work through these two verses, three simple headings. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, for in it a righteousness from God is revealed. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm sure I've said this before, but anytime you see the word for or therefore, In a verse, you've got to say, what's it there for? And it's therefore to connect 
what's about to be said to what has been previously said. So why does Paul say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Well, because of what he's just said in verse 15. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also in Rome. Here's the explanation why. Because he's not ashamed of the gospel. Now, when Paul says this statement, it's an interesting figure of speech. It's known as uh, litotes. It's a deliberate understatement that he, where he uses a, a double negative. He combines the word ashamed with not. But his point is positive. So if I was to say, he's not a bad preacher, I'm really saying he's a pretty good preacher. Paul's saying here, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I glory in the gospel. I boast in the gospel. It's a dramatic way of saying it. He wants to say it this way because he wants it to pack a punch. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Now, that should give us pause for just a moment because are we ashamed of the gospel? Are we eager to preach the gospel because we we glory in the gospel? Because we have this unshakable confidence in the gospel. We would love to have Paul's passion, wouldn't we? His eagerness, his enthusiasm, his confidence. But let's just be honest for a moment. We don't. We're not eager to preach the gospel in the way that Paul was. Like Opportunities might present themselves to us during the course of the week. And we seize up. We don't open our mouths. And part of the reason, if we're honest, is we fear what people will think. We fear how people may react to the message. We perhaps lack real confidence in our ability to present the message of the gospel. We even fear that people might reject us if we share the gospel with them. There are plenty of reasons to be ashamed of the gospel. Just think about it. At the heart of the gospel message is the crucified Christ. It's humiliating. It's shame. The the, the naked Christ hanging on the cross. The bad news of the gospel. You know, we sang in Psalm 145. I love that psalm. It's one of my favorite psalms. But there's one line that stands out, but he slays the wicked. The bad news of the gospel is that sinners are deserving judgment and all those who do not turn to Christ will at the end, face God's eternal judgment and punishment. Now, let me say this. If you know yourself to be ashamed of the gospel as as I do, you're in good company. Read through the New Testament. Paul, writing to his protege, Timothy, he had to say to him, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Don't think it's an accident that he writes this letter to the church in Rome and he says to them, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Their problem, perhaps, was some of them in that church were ashamed of the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones, really helpful here, he says, if you have never known the temptation of being ashamed of the gospel, it's probably not due to the fact that you're an exceptionally good Christian, but that your understanding of the Christian gospel has never been clear. Do you know why? Because the gospel is explicitly offensive. Lloyd-Jones says that the world always ridicules this message one way or another. 
Paul knew that. That's why he said it's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Greeks. Just think about the Jews, right? They, they prayed. They waited for their Messiah. And in their, in, in their mindset, they thought their Messiah, the servant of the Lord, he's going to come in power. He's going to overthrow the Roman Empire. Perhaps a palace. Perhaps he'll have beauty and majesty. But they weren't expecting their, their Messiah to be born to, to little girl, Mary, peasant, to be born in the stench of a stable, a manger. They weren't expecting their Messiah to come from Nazareth of all places. And they definitely were not expecting to believe that the one who was crucified by the Romans was the one who had conquered their enemies. Stumbling block. Foolishness to the Greeks. The Greeks, with all their philosophers, sophisticated in their thinking. There's no way this message, this message that God saved sinners by faith alone and Christ alone was a message that appealed to them. Remember Paul in Athens? They ridiculed him. Many of them rejected the gospel. Indeed, some did believe, but others rejected it. Here Paul says in verse 15, verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel, and here's why, because I am not ashamed of the gospel. Do you know why he was not ashamed of the gospel? Next point. Because it is the power of God unto salvation. It is the power of God for salvation. It is because God's gospel has supernatural power to liberate sinners from their bondage of sin. It doesn't matter how sinful a person is. It doesn't matter what sinful lifestyle they may lead. It doesn't matter if they're a Greek, a barbarian, if they're wise, or if they're foolish, or Jew, or Gentile. The gospel is powerful to save. It doesn't matter how hardened one is in the resist to the gospel. The gospel is far more powerful. Now, here's one of the reasons why you and I are ashamed of the gospel. It's because we so often forget that. We sometimes are scared to share the gospel because we don't have confidence in the way we might present the gospel. That's a huge mistake. We are weak people and often we will stumble and stammer and we'll not say it all right, but the gospel's the powerful message. The power is in the gospel. When it's accompanied by the Holy Spirit, it explodes in human hearts. It is intrinsically powerful, the good news that God saves. I remember the first time this hit me. I was doing a street evangelism of all things. And I shared the gospel, the good news, that God saves sinners. And the guy said, I'll believe. And his life was changed. He went from death to life, from blindness to sight. His eyes were open to Jesus. And he got a new heart, new affections, new desires. And started living for Christ. The gospel is the supernatural message with supernatural power and it is received by souls who put their faith and trust in Christ. Here's the reason why Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God unto salvation. And think about his own testimony. He was a blasphemer. He was a violent man. He was persecuting God's people. He was breathing out murderous threats, taking letters to the church in, uh, to the church in Damascus because he wanted to kill them. And God stopped this terrorist in his tracks. 
arrested him with the message of the gospel. And his life was transformed. Paul himself had experienced the wonder-working power of the gospel. If you're a Christian here tonight, so have you. And that means you've got every reason for confidence in the gospel, every reason to glory in the gospel, every reason not to be ashamed in the gospel. Nothing compares to the power of God in the gospel. Now, we're reading this verse in the context of Paul writing it to the church in Rome. If you'd said Rome in the first century and said, what do you most associate with Rome? Everybody would say power. Greatest empire. Devastated other nations, kingdoms, subjugated so much of the known world epitomized power. And so we're against that. Paul comes and says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. There's another power that's been unleashed in this world, and there is nothing that compares to the power of God in the gospel. Regardless of all of the accomplishments and all of the achievements of the Roman Empire, Paul was saying it's them. It's them that need to hang their heads in shame. Because the good news of the gospel is that God saves sinners. He lays waste to his enemies. The Romans might conquer foreign nations. God defeats sin, death, Satan, hell. For that reason, as Paul looked forward to be, for that reason, Paul looked forward to being in Rome. He knew that Rome didn't stand a chance with the gospel. Hence the reason there was now a gospel church planted in the very heart of this empire. Now notice that Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Do you know what salvation means? It means deliverance from great danger, rescue from ruin. So here's the question. What danger are we rescued from? What is salvation? The answer is God himself. You see, God's wrath burns against sin. And by nature, you and I are objects of God's wrath. And we need to be rescued from the wrath of God. And there's only one who can rescue us, and that is God himself. Only the power of God can rescue us from the wrath of God. That's why Paul was eager to go to Rome with the gospel, because he knew that there there was people under the wrath of God, but he knew that there was a God who provided a means of salvation. You know, when I became a Christian, Just before becoming a Christian, I used to think when I heard the gospel message, it was too good to be true. Because the call was believe and you'll receive. I didn't want that. I wanted to do something. I realized I'd made a mess of my life. I knew I was a sinner. And yet the preacher every week, he said, you want to become a Christian? Repent. Believe, and you'll be saved. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. You want 
to be saved from the wrath of God. You want to experience God's forgiveness for your sins and no life eternal. Here is the way in which you receive it, by faith. You believe. It is as simple and yet so glorious is that. The belief, the faith is, is a gift from God himself, as we thought about last Sunday night. But to become a Christian, it's faith plus nothing else. This is one of the things that Martin Luther had skewed as a Roman Catholic. It was his works, it was his efforts, it was his discipline, it was his penance, it was everything but faith alone and Christ alone because of the grace alone. If you were just to look down at verse 17, notice that it says, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It's a Greek phrase that says, Faith is the beginning and faith is the end. The Christian life is a life of continual faith. Faith, empty hands, receives the gift of salvation. And notice that Paul says, The power of God unto salvation is for everyone believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. That's a catch-all way of saying the gospel is literally for everybody. There's Jews, God's chosen people, and there's Gentiles. That's everybody else. First for the Gentile? That's because salvation, the Messiah, came through the Jews. What was Paul's practice in the book of Acts and his missionary journeys? Even though he was the apostle to the Gentiles, he would make a beeline for every synagogue. God's people desperately need to hear the gospel, the Jews. One of the the things we are committed to praying for a ministry is CWIs, how I always come straight to mind, Christian Witness to Israel, IMPJ. Is that right, IMPJ? And um, IMJP? And um, International Mission to Jewish People? And that is a significant ministry to support. If the call of the gospel is that it's first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, we lose something from the mission that God has entrusted to us if we don't care about God's people who have not yet opened their eyes to the gospel. We, we, the Free Church uh, of Scotland, it's got a rich and long history from its inception in 1843 of sending missionaries all across Europe, indeed to Palestine, for the evangelization of the Jewish peoples. May we never lose our heart for that ministry. The gospel is for everyone and anyone. Doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter your ethnicity, the gospel is to go to all. And we know that to be true. Just look around this church tonight. <laughs> so many different ethnicities represented in this very building. Well, now we come to our, our third and our final point. So we've looked at the, for, for, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the reason why Paul's eager to preach the gospel. He's not ashamed of it. The reason he's not ashamed to preach the gospel is because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Well, here's the final four, if you look for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It was this verse in particular that Martin Luther hated. He read it. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And he understood that that to mean that God is righteous, he's a judge, and therefore he must condemn all sinners to everlasting torment. He 
hated this text. He wrote this. When I encountered this, when I studied this, I did not love. Yes, I hated this verse. The righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly. I was angry with God for this. I labored as to how to understand Paul's phrase, the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. I saw it anxiously, but the expression was locked from me. So when Martin Luther read this verse, he understood, okay, in the gospel, this verse is saying that God is righteous, and if God is righteous and we are unrighteous, that we are all then condemned to hell. And in his life, he thought that if the only way to salvation, the only way to get right with God is to be righteous. And he thought in his head that was dependent on what he could do. Now, the Roman Catholic Church did have a whole theology of, of Christ's righteousness been infused through the sacrament, so on and so forth. But at the heart of Luther's problem was he thought that he had to make himself righteous to be accepted by God. And he realized he could never live up to God. And you know, Martin Luther's problem, it's not unique to him, it's true of all of us. Even in our Christian walk. We sin, we mess up, we think to ourselves, I need to make up to God. I need to do better. I need to give myself to the spiritual disciplines. I need to fix myself. But the re- the discovery Luther meant was when he discovered that the phrase, the righteousness of God, has got nothing to do in this context with God's righteous character. The righteousness in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, does not mean God's condemning righteousness, but rather the righteousness of Christ that is given to us as a free gift when we exercise faith in Christ. When you understand that's what this phrase means, it changes everything. And for Luther, it changed everything. He, he'd read through the Bible. He'd written on the Bible. He'd preached through the Bible. Martin Luther was one of those men who tried to devote the entire Bible to memory. But when he discovered the meaning of this text, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness that is spoken about here is Christ's righteousness, his free gift. It opened up his understanding to the Bible and the message of the gospel. When he had this conversion experience, this is what he wrote. When by the Spirit of God I understood these words, I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. He came to understand that the gospel is this message. And this this is where we get to the heart of this sermon, the message. In the gospel, God gifts us. Christ, who is our righteousness for us. He lives a life we could not live, obedient life. He dies a death we should have died, wrath-absorbing death on the cross. He conquers the grave. And, and, And Luther came to understand that that's the gospel, it's this gift. Paul says this so, so many other places. Philippians 3.9 I do not have a righteousness of my own by my works, by the law, but instead righteousness has come to me through Jesus Christ by faith. In the gospel, the, the, the great exchange is Christ, the righteous one, takes our sin. The sinless one takes our sin, becomes sin-bearing, curse-bearing, substitute on the cross. At the same time, he imputes and credits to his people's account 
his righteousness. And we call that justification when God's people are declared righteous. We, we, we read it in, in, in the Heidelberg Catechism. Let me read it. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accused me that I've grievously sinned against all the commandments of God, and I've never kept any of them, and I'm still prone always to all evil, God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never committed, nor had any sin, and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me, if I only accept such benefit with a believing heart. See, when this truth is opened to you and I, it changes everything. You are justified before the judgment seat of God. Permanently. Irreversibly. Do you understand the magnitude of this truth? The life you live by faith in the Son of God who, 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 who lived for you and died for you, his life is your life. When God sees you, he sees Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ, in God, with Christ. That means all fear of God's judgment from the Christian is gone. We are permanently righteous. This is not a righteousness of our own. So Luther spoke about this as the alien righteousness. It is Christ's righteousness, but it's become our righteousness. So in the last time we're going to sing, someone who understands this truth can write what Wesley wrote, No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. You know when you put your faith in Jesus, you know when you receive the gift of salvation, you are as righteous as Christ is. You know, we we don't live our life, right, waiting for God's final verdict in our life. The verdict, accomplished, cross, life of Christ given to us. We don't live in fear of the judgment seat of God because we live the life that Christ has given to us. Now, now, now this needs to impact the way we live our lives. So many of us who, who, are, who are Christians, right? I don't know about you, but we can spend so much of our lives caught up in endless introspection. You know, trying to convince ourselves that there must... Maybe there's righteousness in me. Maybe I can live a life that's, that's godly and holy and pleasing to God and God will love me. And then we, we, we don't and we can't and so we self-loathe and we self-condemn. And sometimes we single out certain sins. You know those habitual sins we keep on doing that we know we should not be doing and we think because of this God can't love me. God, God must merely tolerate me. He, he must want to cast me away from Him. We, we, we lose our assurance. We become so unsettled. We, we, we feel condemned. 
Listen, this is what the gospel means. Enough of that. To hell with that. That's not biblical Christianity. You are righteous. Permanently. Stop dwelling on your past sins. I know you've got them. I know sometimes they haunt you. They torment you. It's gone. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Stop fearing your future. Your future is secure, bold. You can approach the eternal throne. Claim the crown through Christ your own. This is heaven's religion. This is the gospel of amazing grace. And and when you understand this is the message of the gospel, and it's so glorious, you can understand why Paul says, I'm eager to preach this gospel. I'm so confident in this gospel. Because it's not about what we can do. It's about what Christ has done for us, given it to us, rescued us from the wrath of Almighty God. It's no surprise that Martin Luther, when he discovered the gospel, was so set on fire by the gospel that it ignited this revolution, this reformation all across Europe. Sitting somewhere near here, John Wesley, he heard the preface to Martin Luther's commentary in Romans read and it strangely warmed his heart. Somewhere near here, his brother Charles Wesley penned this hymn, And Can It Be? And if you read through all of Wesley's hymns, you discover that so much of the truth is just Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 put into song. When you get the gospel, you sing, you preach, your heart is warmed, you live for it. Our life is this, the righteous shall live by faith. And so, brothers and sisters, as we begin now to move into Paul's letter and fill, we're done with the introduction. But Paul is going to unpack this message in its entirety. Beginning in verse 18, we're going to hear the bad news through chapter 3. And then comes the good news. And then comes the glorious news of how this is ought to shape our lives. How we ought to deal with the sin that indwells, that remains. And then comes the glorious news of how this gospel's got to go to God's people, the Jews, and to the world. And how this gospel can address tensions and divisions between Jew and Gentile. This is a glorious gospel that transforms people's lives. May it transform our lives. Your life, my life. But may it go beyond here. May it ignite a new reformation. Let's pray to that end now. Let's pray. God, over 500 years ago, you brought this young German monk to see the truth of the, the gospel in these two verses. God, would you tonight, for most of us in this room, we are Christians, we, we've heard the gospel, we trust the gospel, and yet so often we would have to confess that we lack confidence in the gospel, we don't glory in the gospel as often as we ought to. And so we pray that beginning now you would be stretching and deepening our understanding of the gospel, 
and that we would respond appropriately to the gospel. We would live lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. God, make us people who are eager to preach the gospel. Remind us that we need not to be be ashamed of the gospel. Even living in a great city like London where people might mock us, ridicule us, laugh at us, we've got no reason to be ashamed because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Lord, forgive us for when we look to our own selves and think it's down to our presentation of the gospel. Lord, help us to have our confidence in the supernatural message that always is accompanied with your supernatural power, the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you that the gospel defeats the greatest enemies of sin, death, hell, and Satan. And Lord, we pray that you would just soak our hearts and our minds, that we would meditate, that this gospel would go deep down into our souls. Lord, forgive truly when we stop resting, trusting, and living by faith from first until last, and we turn to try and live this works righteousness. Oh, have mercy upon us. How foolish we can be. May the sweet news of the gospel stir our souls tonight and may it be over out of the glow of our thankfulness that what leads us to live for you this week. For we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.